Well, it's great to be together. If you could turn this up a little bit. Isn't it great to be on Easter? And, you know, we say these, these cliches, and I hope that they make us happy. Christ has risen. Christ has risen again, or today. There it is, not again. But I confess, every time we do it, I know, it's a downer. It's about to come. But it just feels like, I don't know, New Year's night, where it's all about saying these things, and somehow it turns into something rote and irrelevant. I mean, really, how is what's happening today really going to matter tomorrow? I mean, let's just be honest. Does Christianity really matter anymore? I mean, haven't we moved on to a post-Christian context in America? Well, at least in New England, I know that we have. Such that whether you're a Christian or not, it really doesn't matter and make a difference in the rest of our lives. I mean, today, apart from that Christendom world, civil rights, land ownership, and economic, academic, political and social upward mobility, all of those things no longer are benefited from being a Christian. There's no longer an affiliation with being Christian in those spheres of life that somehow would benefit us. Quite the contrary, they might even be to our detriment. To be or not to be a Christian, well, it's become at best a lifestyle preference. At best, and if, and if it works for you, well, I'm happy for you. But it's, it's an individual thing. You know, how we just get on. Now, to be sure, in this uber-modern, post-Christendom context, the question ceases to be, is it true or not? The real question is, is it even relevant or not? And in this, we find ourselves back to believe it or not, a pre-modern, pre-Christian context of the first century within the ancient context of the Roman Empire. In such a context as they knew it, that it existed without Christianity, much like today, for three generations, it's been said in New England, Christianity has truly been, for the most part, irrelevant to life in New England. We are the the least religious people in America, go look for it. And perhaps even, in many respects, throughout the world. That's who we are. That's the soup we're drinking. Think about it. There was no Christian tradition, even as there was no Christendom past in the first century. People had learned to live life and were living life, well, you could say in their mind, just fine, without Christianity. In the mid-first century, Christians were, you have to hear this, nobodies. They were hardly noticed by the social media of that day as even existing. A small, insignificant, ragtag band of Messianic Jewish sect at best. And if any one of these marginalized Jews were to attempt a rational argument for the existence of God or for the Messianic claims of Jesus Christ... Well, it would not have been met with either enthusiastic embrace or passionate disdain. 
would have been met with a yawn. Perhaps being humored. Life, that is. The real, everyday life was such that Christianity was irrelevant. And honestly, let's just be honest. Isn't that where we're living today? How then would Paul have answered the question of relevancy? Is Christianity relevant such that conversation about its truth or not would even be interesting? Today we hear Paul's answer. And quite honestly, Paul's answer was, it's not relevant. It's not relevant at all. That is, unless the resurrection. In a stunning simplification, the Apostle Paul, not one for reduction at all, if you know anything about Apostle Paul, he reduces the whole of Christian relevance to a single verse in this passage. Here it is. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. I just want us to take a deep breath with all of this Easter stuff. Let's just take this verse in. Is the resurrection that significant to you? Clearly for Paul, it was more than a mere statement of faith to be recited for membership vows in an ancient cult. It was more than just credentialing creeds something that we would recite on those ceremonial occasions. I wonder, if Paul would say it at all, how would he have said it? Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. I suspect he would want to emphasize the indeed. You see, it reflected something Well, more akin to not so much a creed, though it certainly was a creed. It certainly was a belief. But in its fundamentalness, in its its existential import, it represented Paul more than someone who had come to believe in the resurrection as someone who has now been encountering it. You heard it even there in and the report of the scripture there, that that he encountered the risen Christ. These people encountered this risen Christ. And it's the same kind of encounter that makes Christianity relevant, or without it, irrelevant. And so, what does it mean to be a Christian? Is it even relevant If someone were to ask them back then in the first century, why are you a Christian? With a straightforward answer, the answer would have been, because Jesus was raised from the dead. That's why. What then was Paul thinking when he said, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain? That's what we want to find out. We want to dig a little deeper into this passage. Not just the glorious, creedal aspects of it, though they are glorious and true, but the existential aspects of it. Why is it relevant? 
We want to look at how Paul will relate the resurrection to a new identity, a new future hope, and the result then of a whole new way of life. These three things. But let's pray as we come now to God's word. Lord, we thank you for this day. On Sunday, the cataclysmic change that took place even in Judaism itself when, when from the seventh, it was transitioned to the first day of the week, the Sabbath rest, to remember, to commemorate, to experience anew every week your resurrection, the first day of your, of your resurrection history. And so, Lord, come now and make history in our hearts. Do something in this room, Lord, please. Don't let us just rotely say these things and have our happy times, though happiness is a good thing. But, Lord, help us, Father, to be smitten by your Spirit that we might encounter the risen Christ, its relevancy, as much as its truth is. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you hear it again, didn't you, in the passage? Paul will begin with this statement of a grand declaration. Let me read it again. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. The gospel is good news. What makes it good news? Here it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Now we're seeing that gravitas. What I was, have also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then after a brief summation of why the resurrection can be believed, and he walks you through, did you remember those amazing encounters? That this wasn't something that was a myth. These people encountered this living, raised from the dead person. Over 500 were told. In a very large sequence, he, he goes through it. First to this, first to them, then, 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 then. Now, at the end of the service, I'm going to return to those episodes. We're going to close with the profound befuddlement that these people experienced. The doubt, the fear. Some thinking them, perhaps at first, to be a ghost. This was not a kind of first century believability myth. These people were as skeptical and as perplexed as you may be today if this is the first time you've ever heard about what Easter is all about. I mean, really? That's ridiculous. We'll return to that. But first, I want you to want to return to that. And let's turn then to what he says next. For after this brief summation of why the resurrection can be believed, He gets to the point. In verse 13, he says, If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. Why? Well, first, he begins to talk about a new identity. Listen to what he says in verse 17 again. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And he goes on to say something that at first I'm sure you're going to go, huh? But he goes on in verse 20 and says, For as by a man came death, 
by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now he's going to return to this later on in chapter 15. But before we get there, I want us to step back from the passage a little bit just to help us get our mind around what Jesus, what Paul is talking about here. Today, even in our modern world, according to psychology, at the heart of our human problem is what many will describe as a so-called identity crisis, a problem of self-image. This was coined by psychologist Eric Erickson. The term identity crisis is the failure to achieve what Freud would have called the ego identity, which forms the core of what psychologists will describe as our psychosocial identity. That is, how we relate to ourselves and how that is impacted by how we relate to others and how that will impact how we will relate to others. It's, it's this profound sense of who we are. Humanly speaking, this psychosocial or image, self-image, is directly related to our most significant others. This is important. They saw this, even from their social science perspective. A developmental term, therefore, often related to our relationship with our parents, especially during adolescence. Don't turn me off here. You're going, where is this guy going? It's coming home, I promise. Because from the Christian point of view, they were right and wrong. From the Christian point of view, we agree that one's self-image fundamentally informs how we live ourselves and with others. It impacts everything. Our relationships, our initiative, our trust, our confidence, our sexuality, our ambitions, and whether we have ambitions. Ethics, values, everything about humanity emerges out of this sense of self. And you're thinking, well, where is that in Scripture, Pastor? Well, just go back to the beginning. God created man in his own image. Well, this is very interesting, this idea of image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You hear this? Core, fundamental to who we are, is we are what we are as we are known by God and as we are known in terms of ourselves in our relationship to God. You go read Freud. I was a psych major. That's Freud all over the place. Ego. It's interesting. According to scriptures, the fundamental image that was derived that derives our identity, though, is not our human parents at the end of the day. Something much more deep, much more soul-ish. We're at our core, by our very nature. We were made in an identity formed out of our relationship with God. You think, God, really, Preston, I'm... I never really heard this. Maybe you've been around the Christian church for a while. You go, really? Well, let's just pick this up a little bit with Paul, the guy we're talking about now. When Paul begins to look at the problem of the world, in his most grandiose 
sort of expose that you could find in Pauline theology, the book of Romans. How does he begin? What is sin, according to Paul? What does it mean to be in our sin? Well, here's what he says. Interestingly, we confess this much today in our confession. For although they knew God, he starts with, we were born to know God. We were born to know him, and this word is more than just to know about him in a creedal way, but it's to know, to encounter, to experience God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. There it is, what we call sin in the Christian church, the rejection, original sin, that is. There are many sins, but this original sin, the sin of all sins, the sin that begets all sins, is this original sin. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, and their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He turns a corner here. He's not thinking in legal terms, words like justification or or unjustified. He's here talking in deeply anthropological and existential terms, isn't he? He's talking about who we are. We became foolish. Our hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's the key phrase. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now let me tell you what he just said. He's saying in effect that so glorious was humanity in the image of God, so amazingly complete and fulfilled and so much so that you'd be tempted to worship this humanity. You ask me, for instance, how do I know God is not just a kind of humanless spirit in the world, as so many religions today just speak of? How would we know that, that this God who created the universe is, is a personal God? And I'm going to look at you and say, you're the evidence. Look at you. You're gorgeous. You're amazing. You have such glorious minds and wills and volitions and the passion that moves mountains is sitting in this room. It's just incredible how gorgeous humanity is. And Paul is weeping here. You exchanged this image of God that informs your very core, this ego, this self-image, if you will, derivative from God, and you became earth-based, is what he's saying here. You became creature-bound in your image. Freud and Erickson were right. This ego, this self-image is fundamental to who we are, and therefore how we live. But, of course, they trace it back to our human parents in a secular paradigm. They trace it back to earth. But for the Christian, we trace it back to our ultimate significant other, our creator, our God. So goes, then, that relationship to God So goes our relation to ourselves as this impacts our relation to others in the whole of life. Now, you have to hear me. Paul was tracking with all of this. Listen to what he says later in this passage. 
about what he means is that you were left in your sins apart from the resurrection. Chapter, the same chapter, 15, verse 49, we didn't get to read it, but it's right down here. It says, just as we were born the image of the man of dust in our sin, we shall also now bear the image of the man of heaven. So here we go back to this passage. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. What does Paul mean? Two questions emerge. What does it mean that we are still in our sins? Answer, we are still in our first parent's image. Adam. Who rejected God. He's the one that's being described there in chapter 1 of Romans. Who rejected God divorced himself, alienated himself from God in a manner that then left him to the dust in his self-image. Let me read it again, right here in chapter 15. We were once born in the image of the man of dust, earthbound. But now we bear the image of the man of heaven. Already we see the resurrection. Where is Christ? from the dead, not to decay in the dust. And therefore, this image, perfect of God, who mediates to us what we are to be in relationship to God, Paul is saying by faith in him, by reconnecting ourselves to God through this perfect image bearer, Jesus the Christ, who showed himself to be not of the dust, not of the creaturely order, but of heaven itself by the resurrection of the dead, it would therefore transform everything about who we are and how we live our lives. That is estranged from God. We were alienated from God, not right with God. That's what it means to be in sin. The image had been destroyed into this dust-formed thing. You know, much has been written about in this context of the ego and self-image about our relationship to our parents. I know there's a lot about it right now. Men are thinking a lot about their relationship with their fathers. And it's true, it's profound. It was profound in my life. Had deeply profound impacts in my life. Some good, not some not so good. When I became a Christian, my father at the time was an alcoholic. The way I was raised, there were things about that, that that you could describe as at least emotionally abusive. I love my father. He's passed at this time. But I say this to be honest and vulnerable. We can do that here can't we? And it wasn't until I became a Christian where there was now a higher, greater, significant other in my life that then just radically transformed my relationship to my father. I began to see him in a whole different way. Not as my image bearer, but as a fellow human whose own image was incomplete from God. 
I found a new love for him, a new care for him. I prayed for him. It changed the way I related to him entirely. It was almost overnight for me. Because at least in my own experience, I had encountered the risen Christ. And in a way that it transformed now my relationship to my father, one of the first relationships that got transformed. I remember coming home the night that I was baptized, seeing my father on a couch, passed out, and I found myself praying for him and loving him. As if everything in my own self-image that was marred by that got wiped away. And I saw in him so many wonderful ways that I appreciated him. Now, I'm saying this testimony. I've never shared it before in public, I don't think. And it still is something you're always working with. I know, man, if you're a man. But women, I know this is true for you too, particularly with your mother, perhaps. There is a sense in which you know intuitively what Paul is talking about here if you have a parent. And if you've been relating yourself and your whole life has been a reaction to that relationship with your parent. Paul here is saying, I am no longer of this world in my image. Paul will say in other places, put your mind, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated, not on things on this earth. And he meant that not, I always used to read that and go, oh, what's that? What does it mean, set my mind? What am I supposed to do every day? Just set my mind on heaven? Mm, kumbaya, kumbaya? No, it's profound. It's existential. It's psychosocial that Paul is talking about here. And so what does it mean to be in sin? For Paul, it means to continue to be in the image of Adam. Someone who carries about with them a sense of guilt. A sense of alienation and aloneness. The homelessness, what, what sociologists call anime. It's to carry around with us this sense of, 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 of having to please people because they become the significant other. We go from a parent to one other to another to another and we become human pleasers. We lose the core compass of our being because now what is good and bad becomes what others applaud me for or not what others would share me for. Does that sound familiar to you? Living to please other people? Living in this this performance-based world of having to perform in order to feel good about myself, having to prove myself over and over. I mean, how how many times are you going to prove yourself, people? How many degrees can you get? How many new job uh, can you get? I mean, what's it going to take to satisfy this self-image problem that we have? Paul was the same way. Became the Jew of all Jews. The Pharisee of Pharisees. He mastered that organization kid mentality that goes through the pipelines of training and study because Someday, somewhere, I'm going to arrive and I'm going to be comfortable in my own skin. And he never came to it. He was never comfortable in his own skin until he encountered the risen Christ. Until he was able to say, I was once in the image of a man of dust, bound to this world. 
now I've been set free. I am in the image of one in heaven. I've encountered that one perfect image bearer who was vindicated as to be that perfect image bearer by his not being contained to the dust. That's the resurrection. That's the second question. And what does the resurrection have to do with it? Whereas we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We know that now, because of Christ's resurrection, our significant hope is not on earth of dust. Our significant power then, how, how we view power, it's not economic power anymore. It's not political power anymore. It's not all these earthbound powers anymore. It's the power of another sort. He spokes about a battle, and it's a battle not about principalities and powers on earth, but this greater power, and the power that comes from heaven in the person of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it, I don't know how to put these in words. It radically shaped, reshaped Paul's self-image. His worth, his esteem. I'm glorious. And other people are glorious. Now, I want you to hold on this because I'm going to end the study with a bit of a history of the early Christians and how it changed the world. But it started right here with this identity. Christ is dead, then we know that Christ's image is not of heaven, but of dust like Adam. But the resurrection is a loud declaration that Christ's image is not earthbound, and neither are we. He was vindicated. You see, the resurrection is not just a sentimental story about never giving up. It's not some, the possibility of coming good, coming from evil, though that's true. It's not, first of all, a story about how suffering can be sanctifying or a story about how Jesus' suffering for all humanity is so noble and gracious and mercy. Because all of that could have happened if he just went to the cross and stayed there. Every one of those stories that we hear so often at Easter, it just stays at the cross. Yeah, he would be a noble martyr. Yes, he would be an amazing moral exemplar, an ethical, spiritual guide that that even a Buddhist could embrace, as many do. But then you get to the resurrection, and you realize all that stuff is secondary. He is the image of God restored. He is humanity restored. And in him... We are new creatures. The old has passed away. The new has come. Paul will say these things all the time. Put, on the, take, put off the old self, which belonged to your former manner of life and corrupt thoughts and deceitful desires, and put on the new self created after the likeness, the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. As Benedict once said, the Pope, Jesus of Nazareth, there had been an evolutionary leap in the human condition. A new way of being had been encountered in the manifestly human but utterly different life of the one they met as the risen Lord. And that insight radically changed all those who embraced it. 
And that leads to the second big issue. New identity, now a new future hope. Verse 18 says it this way, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. You see, the resurrection was a sure pledge to us that we shall also rise again, that we are physically, spiritually immortal. Eternal life. He says in verse 20, a little few verses later, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruit. What does first fruit imply? There are going to be second fruits. Who are those? That's us. He is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruit, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Romans says it this way, if we have been united with him in death like his, that is that our sins he suffered on the cross, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What is a resurrection like Christ? Well, we know, for instance, that it's immortal. The immortal puts on immortality, he says in this paper. Then shall come to pass a saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sing? We sing about it today. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Clearly, it's immortal. We don't die and cease to exist. We're mortal. Secondly, we know that it's not a ghastly, horrifying, gray matter, ghostly immortality. I mean, I don't know about you, man, but that just would stink. No, it wouldn't stink because I wouldn't even have a nose. I want to smell. I want to taste, like big-time taste. I want my taste to come back. And I'm salting, and I'm putting every kind of spice I can on my food as I approach 60. One day I'm going to not be able to do that because it's going to be all alive again, that, that, those tastes, those tongues. I want to taste. I want to see. I want my sight to be restored. Bad. I want my physical body to not be so broken. And this is what we're talking about. Why? Because a resurrection like his was bodily. I mean, this... This image of God, Jesus Christ, it was not ghostly. He ate with them. He drank with them. He talked with them. Audible voices and all. He walked. And you could just fill in, if you eat and drink, all the other stuff he was doing. Okay? He was human. That's what he was. And he was physical. So we believe in a bodily resurrection. Again, he says it in verse 12 in our passage. Christ, he preached, he rose from the dead. How say some you that there is no resurrection from the dead. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who fall into sheep. Raised from the dead. And then he goes on to say, a perishable body must put on the imperishable. But it's a body still. Body. Corporal. What it'll be. And thirdly, a body's got to walk around somewhere. And we know that there's a return to earth. 
In Acts, we see it. In Romans 8, we see it. Especially in Revelations, we see it. You know, we think sometimes that this heaven is somewhere up there. It's not up there. It's right down here. Go read Revelations. Heaven comes to earth. Every prayer of the Messianic age, Old and New Testament, on earth as it is in heaven, we pray. It's never in heaven as it is in earth. It's no just, oh, bring me to heaven. It's always the prayer for heaven to come to earth. It will happen. Did you hear that glorious prophecy by Isaiah in our reading today? Of this great and heavenly mountain of God? Great wine? That sounds good. Hope we have craft beer. I know we will. But seriously, it's, it's a great and luscious place with no abuse. With no sin, no drunkenness, human abuse, but great empowerment. People glorified, but no people humiliated by the glorifieds. Imagine this place that we heard about. It's on earth. And so listen to me carefully. For the, for the first Christians, their future got resolved in a really major way. This new hope became the grounds of their assurance. Paul would say about the power of this world, what can man do to me now? Nothing. What can can my professor do to me? Nothing. What can my corporation do to me? Nothing. What can my peers do to me? Nothing. Not really. Not ultimately. I mean, are you feeling it? Only if you've encountered the risen Christ. Only if you've encountered. I didn't say recited. I said encountered the risen Christ. Can we be set free from this worldly hope and confidence? What shall I say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Man, he was radically changed, wasn't he? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation. That's the key. In all of the dustness of this life will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. History and where it is all going is changed now for those first disciples. It all changed. It truly is an open future. And this leads then to our third category, a radical new life. The way they thought about time and history now had changed. The way they thought about themselves and their identity had radically changed. New identity, new future, hope, and now new lives. Some of you know that, might have noticed that I shared on my Facebook yesterday an article in the Westminster, I mean the uh, WSJ, uh, the, you know, the Wall Street Journal by uh, George Weigel. Uh, he was basing much of this uh, sort of mass consumption-esque uh, little essay on a book by Rodney Stark. Uh, he's a sociology of religion guy. He's, he's into history, and 
He wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure, Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. I want to embellish what he said, but I'm going to reflect for a moment. Just sit back and enjoy this. But how would an encounter with the resurrected Christ change the world? Well, in the year 312, just before the victory of the Battle of Malavian Bridge, won him the undisputed leadership of the Roman Empire, Constantine the Great had a heavenly vision of Christian symbols. Maybe you've heard the lure. This led him, a year later, to end all legal sanctions on the public profession of Christianity. So goes a pious, traditional view. Now, he might have had a dream, and it truly might have been part of the whole thing of God's providence, but there's probably a much more significant, if also more mundane, explanation for Constantine's decision. And it has to do with what this article describes, and I like the term, the Easter effect. So here it is. Let's remember that Constantine was a politician. Now, I suspect politicians were not so different then as they were today, and at the end of the day, they were shrewd, and most likely, he decided to join the winning side. For by the early 4th century, remember, we started with this little band of misfits, nobodies. But in 250 years, more or less, Christians likely counted for between a quarter and a half of the whole population of the Roman Empire. And their exponential growth seemed likely to continue. And then it raises the question, how did this happen? How did a ragtag band of nobodies from the far ages of the Mediterranean world become such a dominant force in just two and a half centuries? The answer, I believe, is the Easter effect, an encounter with the resurrection of Christ. What Stark means by the Easter effect is perfectly summarized in Acts chapter 17. Here we hear of a story, now in the mid-first century, where Paul and those who were with him came into Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. There it is again. He was saying, quote, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, the reaction was this. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women of the city. But the Jews were jealous. They formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Jason's the house where they were staying. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities Here's what they said about this little band of misfit nobodies. These men, they are turning the world upside down. And they've come here also. Do you hear what they're saying? There was a other world type power 
coming through this little group. Again, before the resurrection, it just cannot be overstated how insignificant Christianity was, how timid, how obscure, and hoping to stay obscure they were. A small little subset of the Messianic Jews who, after the death of Christ, were disillusioned and afraid. Hardly acknowledged in all the media histories of that day, they were nobodies, hoping no one would recognize them as a follower of Christ. After the resurrection, after they'd gotten their head around what they had encountered in Christ after the resurrection, we're told they turned the world upside down. The Easter effect resulted in a transformation from timidity and cowardice to now incredible boldness and courage to share the gospel of Jesus Christ after the resurrection. One of the tall tale signs of someone who has encountered the resurrection of Christ is they share the gospel. They can't stop themselves. They've got a whole new identity, remember? They've got a whole new hope for the future, remember? Everything has changed. What had happened to Jesus that slowly began to grasp was not just about their former teacher and friend. It was about all of them now. His destiny was their destiny. So not only could they face opposition, scorn, and even death if need be with confidence, they could offer to others the truth and the fellowship they had been given and did so regardless of how it might impact them immediately concerning the image of dust. They no longer were of the image of dust. 1 Corinthians 15, and why he goes on to explain, right there in that passage, this is coming right out of the passage, he says, why is this thing so important? Why is it in vain? He says, because we are putting ourselves in danger every hour. I die every day. If with merely human hopes, here it is again, this human earthbound hopes, Well, I would never do this, he says. I'd be afraid of the politically powerful. I'd be afraid of the academically powerful. I'd be afraid of my boss and and even my father who may not be a Christian. But now I'm not. What can they do to me? He admits, Paul's always an honest guy. It's in the passage. You can read it, verse 32. If it were merely human hopes, honestly, he says... (laughs) I would say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I'm going to tell you, if you have not wrestled with that little statement, I don't know if you've even gotten in the first base. To be a Christian is to wrestle with that all the time. Man, what I would do if this weren't true. But it pretty much summarizes it for me. Let us go to the Adirondacks and live there forever, for tomorrow we die. That's what it would be. Paul is brutally honest. Obviously, he's been tempted. But he rediscovers the risen Christ over and over again. I am the new creature. This earth is not satisfying. I need a transformation. When we believe in Christ, it doesn't render us merely neutral in this life. All of a sudden, this life becomes a means to the next one. This life and everything we do in it is important as it relates to the next life. The immortal life. The glorious life. Everything changed. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated. 
Ask yourself, have you encountered the resurrection? Are we willing to take risk of prestige or privilege for the sake of boldly proclaiming the gospel to our friends and neighbors and colleagues? Honestly, we didn't get where we were by offending people, did we? Mm. That's not how we got where we were and are. We learned to hold it in. Don't cause the ripples. We're pretty good at welcoming us and people to our church, maybe. We're friendly people. That doesn't offend anybody to be friendly. Do we share the gospel? If you're here and you're not a, a believer, and I know many of you are that way, and that's great. We're glad you're here. No problem with us. Keep coming, man. No one's going to ever force you to do anything. But really, whatever Christianity is, it's not boring. It's not irrelevant. It's not something you talk about on Sunday and yawn after you leave and go back to your normal life. It's just not. Because of the resurrection. Secondly, this Easter effect changed the view of worldly power. Later in the verse we read, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign. What is he talking about, every rule, every authority, every power? There again, we're talking about those earth-bound institutions and things, all good for their purposes, don't get me wrong, but they don't carry the power of the resurrected life and the future hope and identity. You see, before the resurrection, even during Christ's public ministry, their hope in the Messiah was related to political regime change in Rome. The Jewish messianic expectation of that time, not earlier times, but at that time, post-Maccabean revolt and all of this, they, they really believed that the Messiah was a political liberator. Someone who could liberate them from their oppressors and bring about a new geopolitical era. After the resurrection, the Easter effect resulted in a people who knew now how history was going to turn out. That the whole earth, not just the geopolitical regime change, would be restored and filled by those with resurrected bodies like Christ who would inhabit it. As such, their hope turned from trusting in the powers and resources of the world to the powers and resources of the next life spiritual power and wisdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ that alone can reconcile us to our image bearer, or image maker, I should say. We're the bearers. Someone who could restore our image. Someone who could restore our future hope. Now, Christianity was, that's where the action is. Politics? Yawn, yawn, yawn. How boring. All those other powers, economic, Wall Street. Yeah, we, we need politics. We need Wall Street. We need academics and, and institutions like that. They all do some really beautiful things in a common grace, we call it way. A grace of God acting for all people of all faiths and none. But it does not hold within it the power, the messianic zeal that we used to give to these institutions for these first Christians. And so they were filled with this resurrected experience so that now it impelled them to embrace death even as martyrs, if necessary, because they knew now that death did not have the final word 
in the human story. How important is will be power to you in your world, really? Power of politics, economics, social prestige, academic power. How important are these things? Well, you'll know. But what makes you anxious? What stirs your soul to fear? That'll tell you. Third, the Easter effect, once they worked it all out in their thinking, resulted in a lot of profound changes in their lifestyle and values. You see, at the time of Rome, the world and its pagan practices were the norm. Most of the civilized world worshipped Zeus and Apollos and Aphrodite and other gods, whether it's Greek or Roman. Drunkenness with festivals were all commonplace to day-to-day life. Women and slaves were viewed as secondary citizens at such an extreme level that Greek statesmen once remarked, and I quote in that day, we keep prostitutes for pleasure, we keep young female slaves for the day-to-day needs of the body, we keep wives for the begetting of children and for their faithful guardianship of our homes. So long as a man supported his wife and family, there was no shame whatsoever in extramarital affairs. End quote from the first century philosopher. That was their world. Christianity encountering the resurrection of Christ. Those slaves, those women, those oppressed ones. They were glorious in their destiny and deserved glorious treatment on earth. In Christianity, women were respected as they weren't in classical culture and played a critical role, we see, in bringing people to the faith and attracting converts all throughout the Gospels. They welcomed slaves, treated women as equals, and demanded that husbands treat their wives with respect and fidelity. Radical stuff. Wouldn't have made well at the men's club of that day, I don't think. When Roman fathers would have left unwanted children in the fields to die, that was their way of abortion. Kind of like discarding an animal on the side of the road when we don't want it. When this was a common event in first century Roman Empire, Christians would adopt these children and defy the social structures by caring for them. In an age of plagues, the readiness of Christians to care for all the sick, not just their own, was a huge factor in this, in this virilic power that was turning the world upside down. This perhaps became most evident when multiple plagues struck Rome in 165 A.D. and later, from 251 to 266 A.D., at the height of what became known as the Plague of Cyprian. It was estimated that some 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome. Many Romans fled the city, believing the anger of the gods. Most nobles, doctors, statesmen, and priests, they all fled the cities in hordes, leaving the poor to suffer. But instead of fear and self-preservation, Christians quickly invaded the city and cared for the poor, sick, and dying at great risk to their own lives. They believed in the resurrection, you see. Those who are weak and vulnerable on earth are in Christ, destined for glory and power, worthy of great treatment and dignity. Christianity also grew from within because Christians had larger families, a byproduct of their faith's prohibition of contraception, abortion, and infanticide. All prevalent then as it is today. It's the Easter effect that radically changes everything. 
The Easter effect empowered them to mount above the difficulties of life, since they are now in light of our resurrected future, not really ultimate realities. Is it exceedingly beneficial to our souls, says one great preacher, to mount above this present evil world to something nobler and better for the sake of the resurrection life? The Easter effect provided the grounds for a new way of spending time. You can't imagine what a huge event it was to transition from the seventh day to the first day in Sabbath worship for Jews. I mean, that was huge but it reordered their whole time in a way that... And see, Sabbath was was more than just having an event or a worship service. Sabbath was like a reset button where Christians would spend this day remembering who they are and who they are in their image and who they are in their future hope, which would then reset again the whole week of labor and the way they did it. It was a sacred day, and it was now the first day For that was the day where Christ was raised from the dead. Take home. Does Easter really matter? Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Without the resurrected encounter in our hearts and souls, I'm gone. Aren't you? The take home is that it does matter. The historicity of the resurrection changed everything. What makes Christianity relevant? To be sure, it is not the resurrection espoused by the Christianity of mere Christendom, so much but the Christianity wherein Christ, more than a moral exemplar, more than a good spiritual leader among many, is the Christ, the Savior and Lord of all sects and nations, the person and the power of a new way of life now and into the future. We live in an era that thinks of all this as irrelevant. That might even know and assent to the creed that Christ was raised from the dead even, if in the memory of it. But it's the encounter. Jesus described it as being born again. And it's something we have to be born again all the time, over and over again, it seems, in my life. Rediscovering it. On this Easter Sunday, our passage, quite bluntly, yes, is it does not matter unless Christ was raised from the dead. And let's not kid ourselves. It was no less challenging two millennia ago than it is today to believe in the resurrection. For one of the most striking things about the New Testament accounts of Easter and what followed in the days immediately after Easter is that the gospel writers and editors carefully preserved the memory of the first Christians' bafflement, skepticism, fright, and what had happened to this former teacher of theirs once they encountered his resurrection. As in the case of Mary and those with her, Mark's gospel, upon being told that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, has risen, he is not here, Mark tells us in so many words that they had no earthly idea what he was talking about. And that they went out and fled from the tomb and said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid Others, along with Peter, when Jesus himself stood among them, they were startled and frightened and supposed that they were seeing a ghost. Others still, this core group of Jesus' followers goes back to Galilee and they see him. We're told that many doubted. Again, the earthly disciples were as much baffled by the idea of this bodily resurrection, different than what the Jewish 
theology at the time had thought it would be, would, and they were just as baffled by it. Yet here is Paul, speaking now on behalf of the early Christian community, saying that if the resurrection isn't true, then I'm no longer a Christian. The resurrection had become the irreducible bottom line of their faith. And I wonder if for those who have been around Christianity for a while, have we encountered that fresh and new in our lives? If you're here today and you're thinking about Christianity, it's going to start with the resurrection. Did he rise from the dead or not? To be sure, it took the early Christians some time to figure it out, to wrap their heads around it, as we say. But then once they did, it changed everything. Are you here looking for something to change in your life, even if you know not what? Are you sensing that something may be wrong with our world, that it is something that can't be fixed with yet just another new election? Or the new medical breakthrough? Or the new economic system? If only we were to encounter the risen 